Greetings, and welcome to the Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. I'm Phyllis Hollis, your host. As an extension of my Instagram page, Cerebral Women, this podcast offers insights into the visual art world. I interview artists, mainly artists of color and female artists, who will freely articulate what inspires their creativity. In addition, you'll hear interesting perspectives from dedicated art professionals who work with artists and the art institutions that feature them. I'm confident that collectively, these individuals will indeed stimulate your mind as they do our eyes. Please know these interviews are conducted in my Manhattan apartment, so please forgive the background sounds of city life. Welcome to the Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. In this episode, I feature LeVar Monroe. He is an interdisciplinary artist whose work encompasses painting, drawing, sculpture, and installation art, creating hybrid forms that straddle the line between sculpture and painting. He has exhibited widely, nationally and internationally. He was included in Prospect 4, The Lotus in Spite of the Swamp, the New Orleans Triennial, curated by Trevor Schoenmacher. His work was also featured in the 2015 Venice Biennale and the International Art Exhibition, All the World's Futures, curated by then Biennale's director, Okwe Nwezo. He has been awarded residencies at the Skowhegan School of Painting and Sculpture, the McDowell Colony, the Headland Center for the Arts, Joan Mitchell Center, amongst others. LeVar was an inaugural artist in the residence at the Norton Museum of Art and is a recipient of Joan Mitchell Foundation's Painters and Sculptures Grant. He has exhibited at several institutions, which include Orlando Museum of Art, Nasher Museum of Art, Mokata, the National Art Gallery of the Bahamas, to name a few. He currently lives and works between Baltimore, Maryland, and Nassau, Bahamas. Enjoy this episode of the Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast featuring LeVar Monroe. LeVar, welcome to my Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. Thank you for joining me. Uh, Thank you for having me, Phyllis. Yes, my pleasure. When did you discover your artistic passion? I discovered my artistic passion pretty young. And recently I inherited a bunch of family photos. And I was flipping through those photos. And surprisingly enough, there was a photo of me with a pencil in my hand, drawing on a piece of paper. And it seemed as if I may have been four, five, around there. So I can, I think, reasonably say that I had a passion from a very young kid, it seems. And you were, you were drawing. Do you have any memory of what you were drawing? No. <laughs> yeah, I don't have any memory. I just know that it was me with the pencil on the paper, and yeah, I don't have a memory of drawing then at all. And was there a particular artist that influenced you as you got older? So, first of all, I grew up in the Bahamas, and in the Bahamas, art was not something that was greatly appreciated within society, but also it was never really pushed within the school system. So I kind of grew up through high school not being really exposed to artists from the Western world or artists outside of, of, of the Bahamas, pretty much. 
I mean, of course, you know the names Picasso and Van Gogh and those names. But to say formal exposure, I didn't have that growing up. Um, but there were local artists within the Bahamas who were practicing, still are practicing in the Bahamas, um, who I looked up to and who I looked to for guidance at a young age. But, but those are the artists who, I guess, early on in- influenced me. Mm-hmm. How would you define your practice? <clears throat> My practice, um, I think it's, it's a weird merging of painting and sculpture and drawing. So there are oftentimes many objects that are embedded in the painting somewhat as a, somewhat like a relief painting or sculpture from historic times. Then there is the actual painting, which actually comes secondary to the object being placed on the canvas. Um, and the paintings oftentimes, I guess, respond to the objects and the objects sometimes also leads the story that's being told in the overall piece. Are there concepts that connect your work? Um, yes, there are yeah, quite a few concepts and theories and, and histories that I kind of point to within my work. I mean, first of all, I'm coming to the work as a storyteller in many ways. And I think a lot of that storytelling capability or understanding came from, again, back in the Bahamas when we grew up with stories, you know, we grew up with mythologies that our grandparents and our parents told us all the time. Um, and we tried to use those stories to make sense of the world that we lived in. You know, again, we were on a tiny island, but always had a lot of questions, you know, questions about religion always was a thing. And again, we, we, we are also a Christian nation, so many churches. Question about existence, question about placement within society, like all of those things were, were active questions, you know, that, that we had as kids and, and, and many of our parents and grandparents use mythology or their understanding of religion to try to help us better understand our placement um, at the time. So, um, so, so, yeah, so definitely coming from a storytelling um, background, um, I think other concepts um, in, in, in the work is definitely um, mythology. A mythology in a sense that I look at the work as, as, as making my own mythology of sorts. And the mythology that I'm speaking about is, is these characters that I create that oftentimes red, and I consider them red bones, and their counterparts, which are, are yellow, and I consider them yellow bone. And kind of using those characters to, to again try to speak about the world in a way that that oftentimes is ignored or misinterpreted. Do you feel that your audience understands your work? And, and do you think about who your audience is when you're standing in front of a canvas? My audience understand the work. It's, it's kind of hard for me to say if my audience um, understand or, 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 or don't understand. I know oftentimes the work triggers um, various emotions. I do know that the work oftentimes leads to ongoing conversations. And I think just within those two things, there has to be some sort of understanding or some sort of communication happening between the audience and the piece for there to be an ongoing conversation, for there to be tears, for there to be laughter. You know, like, like, like there is some sort of transaction that's happening, you know, um, 
And to answer the second part of the question, do I consider the audience when I'm making work? To be honest, not really. When I'm making work, I'm making work for myself. You know, I'm making work to serve as a therapeutic platform. You know, I think oftentimes I can look at the work and I can see multiple characters in, in which and within each one of those characters, I see myself. So it's, it's definitely a, a very self-centered, I mean, I, I don't think that's the best term, but a self-centered way of, 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 of making work, you know. Um, so, yeah, there's, there's very little consideration given to what somebody outside of myself would think or feel during the time of making, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. It does. And... How do you feel? Does anything overcome you as you approach a blank canvas? Yes, oftentimes. Yeah, it's 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 weird. Phyllis is like really, really weird. What happens? So, so usually, yeah, it's it's it wears it's weird and it varies. So I can go anywhere from being extremely like joyous and excited to being washed away in tears. You know, so it's yeah, and and it's. It's hard to predict those things until it actually happens. And usually this happens, I wouldn't say within a blank canvas, but as the canvas is is beginning to mature. Mature in the sense as conceptually, color-wise, compositionally, like like all of those things are starting to come together. That's when the emotions really happen. And when, when do the titles of the work enter the creative process? That's always the very end. So that's how I know when a, when a work is finished. Yes, when I title the work. And again, most of the works go to multiple titles. And I kind of look at each title as a working title. It's not like writing an essay. You cannot get an essay in one go. You know, there are drafts and working drafts and final drafts, and then you have a final. And it's the same thing with not only the making process, but I think the, 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 the making of the title. You know, I go to at least three or four titles before I get one. Interesting. Do you listen to music while you work? Sometimes. Um, actually, every day, but during different shifts. So I work on two shifts, if that makes sense. So I have a morning shift, and then I will probably take a nap around, usually around 3, 3.30, and I wake up around 4, 4.30, and then I work until night. So during the morning shift, I just listen to talk radio. And the talk radio is very specific. So it's talk radio from the Bahamas. And yeah, I listen to that until it's time to take my nap. And then after I get up from a nap, I listen to music. And the music takes me throughout the night. And and, and that's every working section. That's how it operates. What does your workspace look like? Oh, it's nice. (laughs) (laughs) That's good. (laughs) It's it's pretty big. I have a really big um, workspace. I try to keep it organized, meaning knowing exactly where to rest my hands and stuff. But I have about 200, no, sorry, 2,000 square feet. 200, 2,000, yeah. <laughs> so I have two, yeah, about 2,000 square feet um, that I'm working with. And it's actually in an old cannery um, warehouse in Baltimore. It's it's nice. It's the best studio I've, I've ever had. Um, big bay windows. Mm. Yeah, it's nice. How has your practice changed over the years? Oh, yeah, it's changed tremendously. It's gone in phases, you know. Um, so I remember, I guess the stuff from undergraduate. So I went into undergraduate painting traditionally, but very tiny. And during undergraduate, I studied illustration. So when I left 
my undergraduate studies, I left as an illustrator working digitally. And this was about in 2007, I graduated undergrad. Yeah, so I left working digitally and began working as an illustrator for four years. And then during that time, continued to work digitally, but combining um, traditional drawing with digital coloring. And the end product was a one-of-a-kind print if it was to be shown in an exhibition space, or otherwise it would just simply be printed in a magazine or a poster or whatever, whatever. So I went from doing that to entering graduate school and being um, pushed to make ugly work, because I think the work that I went into was a bit polished. It still was, was gritty, but a bit polished than the work that I um, began doing in graduate school. And then I stopped painting and sculpted for a while, actually. I was doing these cardboard sculptures um, for a while. And then I began painting in semi-abstraction briefly. Um, did a devil series in this very rare abstract way of painting. But during that time, to me, I was really learning how to paint. And then it's now um, what I'm doing. But in between, that, I always drew. So yeah, it's, it's always changing and evolving. And also now I'm beginning to think about animation and the moving image and computer-aided design again. So, yeah, we will see. But it, it's, all, it's always changing. Though. What materials do you use with your sculptures? Predominantly cardboard. Um, and the reason for that is, so in the Bahamas, we have this festival known as Junkanu, where we construct these um, very elaborate costumes with the base being cardboard. Um, and as a kid, I kind of grew up in that environment and was taught a lot of the techniques um, that they were doing. So I, uh, as an adult, um, I, I left that space, haven't done Junkun in a long time, and began to make sculptures again, but, but also begin to think about cardboard in a very specific way. So when I began making the sculptures out of the cardboard, I began to think about the cardboard um, in a sense as it being a material a cheap material for one, but also a material of greater means for many homeless people. You know, so homeless people were using them as beds, using them to make toys, making them um, for, the, for their kids, using them as shelter, et cetera, et cetera, using them sometimes as blankets and clothing and that type of stuff. So what I began doing is I began doing like material exchanges. Um, so I would go to homeless encampments and I would take clean cardboard in exchange for dirty cardboard. And not really dirty cardboard, but, but cardboard that was used by these homeless people. And what came out of them was sculptures. So I was using the cardboard from, yeah, pretty much from, from like the streets and, and homeless encampments to make these very elaborate sculptures. That to me um, served as a celebration of these people who I was, was, was getting the material from. So in a sense, I was thinking, my, thinking of myself as a, as a maid, you know, um, I service you, I take this. But from what I take, I was building these things. And then secondly, as a, as a critique on the society who can spend $30,000, dollars $50,000 on a sculpture, but you cannot give the guy I'm getting a sculpture for, I mean, the material from a dollar type thing. Hmm. You know, so I was using it as a tool of critique. So now I'm to the point where anytime I do sculpture, it's usually um, when I travel to a place so I did a I did a, a huge one in in um, the cast in where I, I went to the to, to, to the local market where they were doing all the exchange and I was again taking the cardboard from from that space 
taken it to the studio in Senegal and, and I again building a big elaborate sculpture. And for me, what was different about that is all the boxes I was getting from this market all had like red addresses, you know, uh, Mali, Gambia, Nigeria, to and from, you know. So so that kind of made up the sculpture there. And, and again, spoke about many things, you know, um, transport, family, heritage, et cetera, et cetera, exchange, et cetera. So, so yeah, usually, I mean, long story short, I just get cardboard from from various strategic places to make the sculptures that I've been making to date. Fascinating. How do you keep learning? Um, how do I keep? I, I think for me, I am always, I've always not been at ease or complacent with things. Work being one of those things. Art being one of those things. When I, when I say work, I'm speaking about art, you know? So, so yeah. And, and, and with, with, with that and ease, I'm always searching, you know, and I'm not searching so much for something that's trendy. I'm more interested in searching something that can serve the work. And again, that can range anywhere from looking at a Da Vinci drawing to looking at work by Thomas Hushron or some, you know, or Chris Ophelia, or I mean, we can go on and on and on. Yeah, but things I, I find necessary to, to, to kind of look at. So I think this uneasiness has, has served as um, a catalyst for me always wanting to expand, but also a fear of just being bored. You know, like I don't want to do the same thing forever. So what can I do to continue to stimulate uh, my creative juices? And again, it goes from sculpture. Now I'm into trying to animate the things that I've been painting. Um, I think that was that 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 is the next ball of excitement for me. I mean, I still enjoy painting, but to see these stuff beginning to move, uh, to collaborate with the sound designers is something that I'm I'm, I'm interested in. And yeah, and see where it goes. I can see this in theater as well, you know. But there are a lot of things that I want from this work, and I'm still young, and hopefully, I'm able to fulfill many, if not all, of them before I die. What do you feel is the purpose of art? Um, I think the purpose of art for me is to, first and foremost, um, record a period um, within life, within society. Um, I'm always thrilled about the idea of being able to leave behind artifacts when I die, many artifacts. So I think that is, 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 is another thing um, I, I kind of, I mean, you think, of, you think throughout history, I mean, we know, we know the story of Britain or of Nigeria or of China, Asia, because of the artwork that was made during those times. I, I know images and, and, and theories based on the Bible because of images that were made during that time. And again, I think about my work or any artist's work as, as the same thing. We are marking the time. Um, we're speaking about, I guess, things that either bring us pleasure or, or pain. And we're sharing it with the world, you know? And I think that's important. I think there's a lot to be said about being able to do that and leave something behind, you know? And, and that, that, that's definitely one of the driving forces outside of my genuine passion for what I do. I'm very interested in, in that notion of, of, of leaving things behind. What are you excited about now? Uh, there are a few things. Um, so uh, an upcoming solo show in Chicago which is very, very exciting to me. 
the Zide Smoker um, in Cape Town. Um, there's a show coming up that includes my work there. I'm excited, really excited about that. Hopefully I get to go to see that show. So Pompano Mets in France. There's another show there that I'm getting ready for this year. And then my London show um, with Jack Bell Gallery. I'm another solo show that I'm very interested in, um, among other things. Um, but they're just a few things from the top of my head that I'm, I've been thinking about. Definitely sounds exciting. <laughs> and, and something keeping you very busy. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Appreciate your time. And your answers, your answers made me think while I was listening. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And I, and I enjoyed it as well. I really, really, really enjoyed it. Thanks. So um, this is the final question. And that is, as a visual artist, what do you feel is your role? I mean, how do you want to impact the way people think? Hmm, my role? I think my, I, I think an impact that I would like to have is, is, is yeah, for, for somebody to be a, to approach something that I've thought about or created or, or some written work and, and be able to live and have like very valid, real, critical conversations about the concerns that the work have. And most of those concerns are, for me, societal, you know, a lot of societal concerns that the work addresses that I, I would hope that people can take back and have, like, real human conversations about thinking conversations, critical conversations, conversations that really matter, you know. So that's what I think the role of an artist should be. I mean, that, that's, that's the work I aspire to continue to make. But I think, yeah, that, that, that there is a major role of an artist, I think, you know, to, to be able to, to force conversations. You know, I think a lot of conversations cannot be said verbally, you know, and then sometimes I think using other mediums to, to kind of enter those conversations isn't not necessarily a, a bad thing. And I think definitely visual art, music, even sometimes culinary arts to have these conversations, you know, makes sense. Well, thank you. I, uh, I appreciate the work you do. And I'm glad you're on Instagram because that's where I discovered you. I saw your work and loved it. So uh, thank, thank you. I'm a late bloomer <laughs> on the Instagram. <laughs> Still learning. <laughs> Better late than never. I know, right? <laughs> Definitely caught my eye. Thank you. But thank you once again for your time. Thank you for listening. It's been a, a beautiful conversation. Thank you for listening to Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. For additional content, please visit CerebralWomen.com and be sure to follow Cerebral Women on Instagram.